If you've ever wanted to hear three CTOs wrestle through what a smart contract looks like, today is your lucky day. Michael Bastos is going to walk us through a smart contract for a DAO coded in Solidity on the Ethereum blockchain. From seven CTOs, my name is Etienne De Bruin, and you're in the CTO studio. All right, so so how much of this can you guys see? Rick, you make it a little bigger? Yeah, I can see about as much as the podcast listeners are going <laughs> to. That's tiny. Which is perfect. So I'm making it there. opposite. Is that a little better? Is that a little better? All right, so Remix is basically a tool that you would use for writing specifically Ethereum smart contracts. I know guys, they're getting into to REST and, and, and others for the different frameworks that are out there and so forth. But this is just a, a DAO example, right? Like you could find these these dime a dozen out there. I kind of wanted to break through and kind of explain what some of these functions look like just for folks that have never coded in Solidity. When I say this, these are just design patterns, that's really all these are. You're basically creating rules in play in order to process data. So this is an example of a DAO without necessarily a token assigned, uh, but you're just basically collecting a list of investors, collecting lists of shares that those investors have access to, uh, voting shares that they have access to, and then the actual voting process. And so you can see here with, with the basic constructor, you have your, your contribution time, like, like what is your end time for your contribution state? You have your voter time, how much time do you have to vote, whether or not you have a quorum. You have checks in place to check to make sure that you don't end up with not enough people in quorum to be able to vote and make a vote on a particular project, right? You have your, your contribute method and your contribute method. Anytime you see this payable right here, those are method add-ons. It gives the method certain permissions. So in the case of when you see payable, what that really means is that that particular method is allowed to move and transfer Ethereum or, or is allowed to move basically coins and tokens and stuff like that. So that, and that's kind of for security purposes, right? So for security reasons, uh, so to ensure that you're able to, you know, limit the scope of a particular method to a particular thing. Let's go to a simple one, right? Where, where you go to create a, a DAO proposal. And so the proposal is very simple. You have an amount for, that, that the proposal needs. So how much a particular DAO proposal requires, like how much money is it going to take for me to do X, Y, and Z? The proposal recipient, who is going to get that money at the end of that particular proposal? Is it a charity? Is it a company? Is it an open source project? And you're going through those processes where, okay, uh, if you're an investor, you add a certain amount, or you're, you're allowed to add a certain component amount, and you can see these methods down here at the bottom, uh, these modifiers that you're seeing here, and you see things like only investor, only admin. But what this basically does is it gives you that perspective of, okay, this is telling me that only uh, certain types of people can create proposals, for example. Only certain people can vote for those proposals. So in this vote function, uh, it's saying only investors are allowed to vote. So it's limiting my scope to say, hey, uh, I, as an investor in the DAO, can vote. Uh, but for example, I can't execute a proposal. So say they voted, say the votes won. Say that the proposal got approved, but only me as the administrator of the DAO can go in and actually execute that proposal. So nobody, nobody can go in and be like, you know, I have enough votes. I'm going to execute. No, there's things in play here that you can codify. And one of the things that they did that's really interesting from my perspective, one of the reasons I wanted to show this was that the thought process to error handling, like being able to tell you that, hey, not enough shares are available. Not enough funds are available or the contribution end date hasn't been reached yet. Those kind of things. Like this is all 
stuff that you can codify. And to, and to Alex's point, like you're right, you don't necessarily need to have a fully codified DAO in order to even call it a DAO or even put out a DAO. You can, you can have a set of managers that are doing this internally. Uh, but I think, I think as technologists, that, as developers that try to automate a lot of stuff and try to build a lot of the stuff, we try to see, okay, how, how can we build this in a real interesting way? I find myself taking on contract gigs just to get familiarized with certain parts of the industry. Like I'll, I'll take on like an NFT contract gig just to work with guys that are doing this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I don't necessarily need the gig. It's just like a learning piece. It's just like, I want to learn this particular bit. So let me go in and work with some of the guys that are doing this kind of work. The things that I've learned is that a lot of them don't do the purest form. To your point, Alex, like a lot of them are doing a half and half. A lot of the guys are doing NFT drops, but they're kind of treating external off-chain sources as the Oracle or as the list of who actually, so that way they can, they can have people sign up for the thing and, and sort of put their wallet information in before the drop actually happens and, and before the smart contract is released. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff happening in the ecosystem, as far as I could tell. Other methods in here, like the ability to transfer your shares to other users or other, other addresses, the ability to redeem your shares. So basically like, hey, I've done with this doubt, I want to pull out. And, and you have sort of these sub-functions that are, that are internal to, to the methods themselves, like the ability to transfer Ether. You know, only certain methods can transfer Ether and, and those methods have their own sort of internal modifiers to, to limit the scope of who accesses those methods and that kind of thing. Any questions? Kim, I knew you were going to be the first one question. Go. <laughs> sure. So I was just looking at this again from an organizational yeah. perspective, right? From as, as a CTO. So if I was, or as a founder or a CEO looking at this, you could say, okay, so I see all sorts of components of a otherwise centralized company. Now, if I've got the votes, I would have methods or functions where I could modify a... Uh, set of bylaws maybe, or create new operational procedures or different things like that, where it actually makes a difference in the operation of the business as it is. You would write code for that. Have you seen any examples of that? I have. And in fact, I learned only this week, I feel like Alex here, I'm like, I just learned it yesterday, but literally I just learned it yesterday. This idea of the proxy contracts, you basically have people writing contracts and the data that's stored in the contract that the external users interact with are the address for a particular contract that has a certain type of logic that they want to, to implement. And then in return, they can update that contract address within the smart contract that's external to the consumer. But if they ever want to update logic, like the, the data, the token, whatever it is, like from a storage perspective, stays in the public smart contract. But if they ever want to interact with new logic or if they ever want to update logic. A lot of the NFT companies that are out there, you'll see situations where an NFT drops, people buy it. And then like a couple of months later, suddenly the NFT is gone, it disappears, right? And, and what happened? Well, somebody bought the company. So the, the, the guys who didn't want to pay for the IPFS storage anymore. And so the new guys that come in and all they have to do, because it's a proxy contract, all they have to do is point the proxy contract to their new contract. And now suddenly everybody's NFT is back up and, and Looking beautiful, right? That's the kind of design patterns that you're seeing over those in the industry right now around things like how do we take something that is immutable and somewhat make it changeable, somewhat make it 
parsable, somewhat make it updatable in such a way where we can keep our customers happy. We can still sell on the dream of immutability, but still give us some power to do the things that we want to do, do the things that we need to do. And I do think a lot of those off-chain resources, giving customers the ability to pre-sign up for NFT drops and stuff like that in Web2 before your Web3 smart contract is ever even out, that sort of thing is, is what I'm seeing a lot of these days. Wow, that was that was good. I, I didn't like how much detail you had to code there. And that's a simple one. Is this what people are referring to, like review the smart contract? Each one of those statements, you have to assume that code execution can get broken at any point in time. And are there ways that contracts can be called twice, that can do double debits and all that sort of thing? You have to get pretty deep into both the knowledge of how Solidity runs on the platform and what are all of the different things interacting to certify a contract, right? Makes me very unhappy, guys. I, I don't feel great right now. So the perspective that I have on a lot of this stuff, yes, I think a lot of the reason why a lot of companies are making a killer right now reviewing smart contracts, I think it's because for a lot of these projects that they're reviewing and so forth, a lot of the founders aren't necessarily technical. They're not the ones actually writing the smart contracts, right? Like they could say, it's their developers. And so when you hire an open Zeppelin or you hire one of these contract reviewers, you're really just having somebody double check to make sure that the guys that you outsourced from overseas aren't trying to rip you off before your stuff drops. I, I see a lot of that. But if you're doing it internally and you're building it out yourself, like you can have more confidence in what you're doing and not necessarily need to pay $100,000 for an outside reviewing firm to necessarily look at it. Unless obviously you know, there's, a, there's a, a sizable enough risk that your company or organization decides that this is definitely something that they will ever need an extra review on. But I also think that there is the benefit of doing everything within a smart contract and the greater risk when you do use external sources, right? Like when you do use outside sources, like when you have an off-chain functionality that, that's built in, uh, I, I think there's greater risk there in terms of somebody getting into your smart contract from an external source by proxying an address that you have or something to that effect. And so there is the open Zeppelins and those guys are very much warranted when you're talking about the ecosystem, not doing things in the purest of ways and wanting to, to have external source dependencies for their, what should be immutable, unchangeable internal smart contracts. Yeah. I think we're also seeing that as more and more of these contracts get written, some of the patterns that you, so getting into like specifically design patterns, we're going to start seeing a lot more, I guess, like kind of primitives and, and abstractions to build upon that will get put in place. Like just for an example, the ownable contract that, you know, opens up when provides, like that was something for a long time, everybody had to code themselves. And now there's, you know, a contract that you can extend that will provide that type of functionality for you. And I think as more and more contracts get written, there, there will hopefully be a more bulletproof set of things to build upon that won't necessarily need as much review and you could feel a bit more secure in your using of them over time. I can see that for participants in a large DAO or maybe even a small one, having immutable contracts and agreements that are codified in the DNA of that DAO's existence, like you can't change it. Everything is attached to that hash. 
I can see how that can instill confidence and trust in that organization. The one part of my brain is like, how do we get into this world where we can't change code and and, and people have to review things before it gets published forever on chain? And then the other part of me thinks, well, immutability is, is, is a beautiful thing. And having the computer brain of the interstellar planets constantly confirm that the code hasn't changed is probably could be helpful. And, and then to now form many organizations and movements around an established set of immutable agreements, I can see how that can make people happy. Trust but verify, right? You're giving money. You're trusting people with your money, essentially. You're trusting people with your hard-earned cash. And so, yes, I, I, as great as it might be for the organization to say, hey, we're going to make a DAO. It's not really a DAO. It's really kind of dis- decision-making on, on the part of the admins. But, you know, like, we'll, we'll, and we'll use off-chain stuff to sort of, to sort of manage everything and, and make sure that, that you're getting out. And that goes back to that discussion that you had at TN with regards to your kid, you know, wanting that Rocket League skin, right? Essentially, they're still doing the Rocket League skin at the Rocket League servers, ostensibly. And as someone who is in this space and is a little bit more savvy, maybe I don't sign up for that now. Maybe I, maybe I buy tokens from somebody that is a little bit more, you know, that's actually storing the skin on, on the contract. It's actually storing the, actually has a little bit more skin in the game in that sense. And you can't separate hype from technical construction. Like hype is going to be hype. Hype is going to happen whether it's pets.com or whether it's, it's Amazon. But one was built really well and one has lasted and tested and lasted the test of time. And the other one is pets.com, right? And so, and so you, you, like you have to sort of think from that perspective of what is scalable, what is workable, what is doable as a product. And, and yeah, you can start without doing the implementations. You can start and it's cheaper and it's easier and it's better for the company and the organization as a whole. But for the consumers, if I'm going into this with with the idea that that decentralized is what's best for my money, then that's the sales pitch in my mind for a DAO or or an NFT or any other organization to do the technically hard thing so that I know that my money will be in the harder to produce, harder to fake portion of this industry. How does that make you feel? Ed? Yeah. Yeah. I, as Michael was talking, I was thinking, you know how the currency flips the transistor zero, like on and off. Mm. And maybe the currency is, we're just like, it's building and the transistor is like, <laughs> <laughs> and we're having this massive conversation as the currency is building and no one cares because when it flips to one, it's going to be a whole different game. Well, what do you think that flip to one looks like though? Like what, when, when that's flipped, is there, I is think there just like I, a set of players that we all know and agree upon, or is it a set of technology? Like where does that land for you? I think it's one of two things. Either our generation dies out and there's just a whole new brand of kids who get it and just, like we code in C and they code in and it's just like, I don't get where the new lines and the return, like I don't get the code. I, I don't get it. And people like Michael will survive because he'll be right there with the kids. The second option I think is just brutally simple, one click 
installs where you just don't, you know, you just don't even know, like you're so far removed from the primitives that you don't even know what the top, all you know is you can use uh, LegalZoom to create an LLC or a S Corp or a DAO. So either we all die out and the new generation comes in or it's so obvious and simple that we're using this whole ecosystem without knowing that we're even participating in it. I think the latter is, is going to be the, the reality. I think there's companies that are going to be in this space. They're going to use the, which I guess was out here because he, he had a really good portion in his book that I just finished reading on Batsian mimicry, right? This idea that if you know what you're doing, then you don't need to use the terminologies in the space to get people excited about what you're doing. If you aren't good at what you're doing, then you're going to use all the keywords and all of the special phrases necessary to get people excited about what you're doing because you're not good enough. You're mimicking basically what the real guys are doing. You're not good enough to pull it off on your own. So when you see people using hype terms and hype phrases and stuff like that, it should trigger a little bit of, hey, do these guys need to shout from the rooftops that they are now or that they are an NFT platform? They're using this or using that because they really don't necessarily know what they're doing or are they just doing something that's really cool and they just so happen to be using an NFT platform or they happen to be using a DAO in order to be able to pull it off. And that sums up how I feel when I go to Twitter and I see the hype, I'm actually nonplussed about it. I don't actually, you know, it's just a whole bunch of talking heads, promoting agendas, whatever. I, I actually, as a CTO type, I'm not too concerned about that. And I can tune that out. Like I can tune a lot of that noise out. But what makes me very uncomfortable is when I go to Raid Guild and I go to Dow Club and I look at these, this terminology being used of people who do not need me. They don't need my participation because the kids are all doing it themselves. That's when I start feeling, oh my goodness, there's something happening that it's almost like you said, Michael, when this thing flips from zero to one, no one's going to care about the terminology that makes me happy. There's going to be bazillion people below the age of 30 or 20 who just get it. Which is like, yeah, I know I, I staked my claim and I logged my thing and I, you know, it doesn't matter. I kind of think of it a little bit like, you know, you enjoy driving a car, but if you were to listen to mechanics talking about all of the components and wrenches and, and electrical connectors and types of bolts and everything that go into putting that car together, you'd feel just as confused. And so do you want to be... Uh, the mechanic, or do you want to be the driver? Of well, let me, no, but let me take that analogy. And I don't think that's the right comparison because it's a, it's a well-known comparison. I understand that. I think it's the comparison between the person who has an electric vehicle, understands how charging works, understands where to plug it in, knows how range anxiety works, gets it, understands the costing the maintenance and all that versus the person who won't enter that market because they're too, that's too unknown and unfamiliar for them. So they'll stick with a gasoline vehicle where they just understand how gas stations work. And yes, they'll pay $4 a gallon because that's how they understand how things work. I think it's those 
comparisons that's happening versus the, oh, do you want to be a builder or do you want to be a consumer or a, a user? So that to me is where it gets a little more real. And I'll use another example between Slack and Discord. I am, I'm 49 and I, I've been coding all my life. So I, I, am, I, I might not write as much code today as I used to, but I just look at the Slack way of doing things and the Discord way of doing things. And it's, uh, yes, they're both chat apps and they are both community-driven organizations, tools that drive community, but they, they, they just function differently enough to make it super uncomfortable for, and I, I maybe I'll be, maybe I'll just use my own bias here, but Slack is like IRC used to be, and it's just very simple and it's straightforward and channels and private channel. I mean, all the bells and whistles they're adding now is, 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 is getting a bit superfluous to me. Discord to me is a complete rethink of servers and Nitro and everyone's in every channel and there's no real concept or, and then there's users across across organized you know it's just a completely it's the same thing it's in community tool but it just works differently enough to push a certain type of demographic out of it keep the olds out yeah I mean do you guys agree or, or am I just I agree I think the analogy that you originally did use at the beginning of this conversation the comparison between Facebook and Snap right where Snap purposely built a UI that would make adults frustrated in order to retain the younger generation that would be willing to use it because they don't want their parents joining the platform yeah like a, a lot of this stuff isn't necessarily intuitive right out of the gate and, and whether and there's plenty of work being done to make it intuitive to to simplify things for, for folks to get into this stuff Thank you for listening. Don't forget that you can go to 7ctos.com slash podcast and check out some more episodes. Get in touch with me. We even have a special way to join our Slack. So let's chat. See you soon. See you next week.